I want to talk to you this morning about messianic faith. That would be faith in Jesus as the Messiah. That is our sermon title this morning, Messianic Faith. And you can join me in Matthew 9 if you want to go ahead and find that. Our text today is going to be 18 to 34. But I thought it would make sense as we begin to talk about messianic faith that we uh, remind ourselves of what uh, that really means. Uh, we define Messiah because that's one of those Christian and church words we might uh, throw around but not really understand what it means. So let's start there this morning. Messiah comes from the Hebrew Meshiach. And that's also in Greek translated Christos, where we get Christ. So... Meshiach in Hebrew, Christos in Greek, and that reminds us that this is a title, not a name. Jesus or Yeshua was his name. Christ or Messiah was one of his many titles, right? And that word means, now as we get into the definition of Messiah, it means anointed one. Anointed one. It would speak of that person, that single individual who would be uniquely empowered by God as a messenger from God to do things that had never been done before or since. This Meshiach was promised, pictured, and prophesied in Genesis to Malachi. And so after the 400 years of silence, that time period from the end of the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, until John the Baptist comes on the scene in the New Testament, as really John the Baptist being really the last great Old Testament prophet, the forerunner of Christ, that's become known as the 400 silent years because God did not raise up a prophet. God did not speak through a prophet. And so Israel is languishing there. And by that time of Christ, they are oppressed by the Roman Occupiers. Uh, they are a defeated country with these foreigners in their land ruling over them, planting their governors and their tax collectors and making life miserable for the people of God. They have sinned so badly. They're once again under oppression and tyranny. It's as if they've gone back to Egypt, yet they're in their own land. And so there was a great expectation and excitement building among the people. After 400 years, after four centuries, after a period of time longer than the history of America... All right, let's let's remember how long this is. 400 years. When is God going to fulfill his promises? And so they were longing for the day of Messiah and messianic expectations and messianic faith was beginning to rumble in the land. It would have been the heartfelt desire of every godly Jewish girl as she came of age at the age of 13 that God would choose her to be the mother of the anointed one. What the Jews knew for certain is he would be fully human. What they did not fully understand is that he would be also fully God. He would then come in time, of course. His name was Yeshua. He was from Nazareth. And he would do signs and wonders as an adult for three, three and a half years. He would authenticate and prove that he was, in fact, the anointed one, the special messenger of God the people had been waiting for. He would do all kinds of miracles, healings, restorations that would affect creation and the supernatural realm of demons and the physical realm of all manner of illnesses. In fact, it's been estimated that he practically wiped out disease and illness in Palestine for that brief period of time. These signs and wonders, some of them, a few of them have been recorded in our Gospels, what we refer to 
as uh, the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're just a tiny snippet of all of the miracles that he performed. When we come to the Gospel of Matthew, where we are as a church in these days, we learn and see that Matthew especially stresses that Jesus would be Messiah. Matthew is a Jewish apostle writing primarily to Jewish Christians. And he wants to teach them and remind them and show them that this Jesus is, in fact, your Messiah. He is, in fact, God's promised king. He's the one. Don't look for another. Don't wait for another. Don't expect another. The expected one has come. And Matthew wants to really show this over and over to his own people. We find ourselves in these days in chapters 8 and 9, right? And in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew did something masterful as a writer. His literary skills are immense. He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's his vocabulary and his personality and his structure coming through. And in Matthew 8 and 9, he gives us three cycles that contain three miracle stories in each cycle. Uh, Three miracle stories times three cycles equals nine authoritative deeds that Matthew presents in these two chapters. And in between each cycle, he intersperses a little, a little slither of comments about discipleship. And so here are deeds of Christ, discipleship, deeds of Christ, discipleship, deeds of Christ, discipleship. And that's the structure of Matthew 8 and 9. Today, we find ourselves in the third and final cycle. The third and final cycle of these three primary stories of healing or restoration. And we'll read them in a few moments, one at a time. But let me give you the common denominator of these three stories this morning we're going to see. And this is a little different emphasis now than Matthew has had prior to this. The common denominator is that the needy and desperate person in each story initiates the encounter with Christ. They come to Christ in great faith, what I would call messianic faith, and I'll show you that as we go along. That's the common denominator. What you must understand as we begin today is that these three individuals come to Jesus already believing that he is the Messiah. They already know this and believe this up front. And therefore, they initiate the encounter with him, knowing that here is, in fact, the power of God in a human person. The anointed one is among us. Now, why is that important? Because of Matthew's aim in this third and final cycle. His aim, really the text idea today, is he wants to show his original readers, those original Jewish Christians of the first century, what it meant to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, we can say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, that's great. But what does that mean? What is the content of that faith? What are we really saying when we say Jesus is the Christ? Well, Matthew wanted to show his Christian readers that answer. Here's what it means to believe. Our faith has content. So today, Messianic faith from Matthew 9, 18 to 34. Here's your outline using three exciting healing stories. I want to show you what it means to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. 
I want to show you what it means to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Number one, it means you believe that he can raise the dead. It means you believe that he can give life to the dead. Go with me to 918. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak or robe. For she was saying to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave. For the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out. He entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land, that land being the land of Galilee. So we go back to verse 18 and how this story begins, this first story. And one thing you'll notice today is that Matthew is going to move from the greatest uh, miracle to the least of the greatest of these three. He's going to move from deadness to, to darkness to dumbness. He's going to have more text and then less text and then the least amount of text. And I'll explain why he does that at the end. But we begin with this really the best of the three, a healing of uh, a raising of the dead. And in verse 18, it says that while Jesus was saying these things to them, what things? (laughs) The, The things of verse 16 and 17. While Jesus was talking about new wine and new wineskins. While Jesus was talking about going from fasting to feasting. From sorrow to great joy. While he's talking about these things. The things that he is bringing as Messiah. A synagogue official rushes up to him. Bows down before him. And says, my daughter has just died. He bowed down, you notice. He bowed down in faith. He bowed down in reverence. Uh, he, He bowed down possibly even in worship. It's always intriguing to know or to think, what do these people know and believe in these moments? But this man is as desperate as they come. Now, the other Gospels tell us that when he left his house, his daughter hadn't died yet. She was dying. He's in Capernaum. Jesus is in Capernaum. By the t- it's a small area. By the time he gets to Jesus, someone has already reached him with news. Your daughter who was dying has died. And so he comes to Jesus, bows down before him. Now, we know this from the other Gospels. This man's name is Jairus. And we also know that his daughter is 12 years old. His daughter is on the cusp of becoming a young woman, eligible to marry, which was the case in Israel at the age of 13. She is a 12-year-old precious daughter of this synagogue official, and she has just died. We would know from this gospel and the others that this man was wealthy. He was a patron of the synagogue. He would have been a respected and well-known man in the area. 
which makes his bowing down to Jesus all the more remarkable. It's most likely that he is both a community leader. Matthew refers to him only as a ruler and also the synagogue official, because that's how Luke and Mark refer to him, which means he would have been president of the synagogue, meaning he was one of the three officers in that synagogue. They all had three officers. He would have been the wealthy patron of the synagogue. And in his role as president, he would have overseen the services of every synagogue service, who would read the scripture, who would bring the word of God in preaching and exhortation. He would oversee the finances of the synagogue and the upkeep of the building. His daughter, he doesn't say literally that she's died. He can't say the word. He says she has literally come to an end. And this is a big ask, obviously. It's a big ask because when Jesus touches a dead person, that would make Jesus ceremonially, ritually unclean. A clean Jew cannot touch a corpse, especially in this situation, not being a close relative. So it's a big ask. It's also a big ask because she's dead. And this is big faith, isn't it? This is huge faith. This is great faith. This man has no doubt. Look at these words. <laughs> He's initiating this. He's the one saying this. He says, Jesus, you come and you lay your hand on her and she will live. How does he actually believe that if Jesus lays his hand on her, he will raise her up to life again? How is this possible? It's possible because Elijah and Elisha did the same thing. And neither of them were the Messiah. It's possible because this man believes Jesus is the Messiah. And if he's the Messiah, he can do acts that are greater than Elijah and Elisha who raised people from the dead. He knows he's a synagogue official. He knows the Old Testament. He knows what kind of power is in his presence. Without any recorded words by Matthew, Jesus silently rises and follows, which is odd. Matthew rarely has Jesus following anyone. But he does in this case, verse 19, he got up and followed him. And so did his disciples. Why disciples are mentioned? Because they will be the witnesses. And one of those witnesses wrote this for us. His name was Matthew. On the way. So this is the primary story. I said there's three, but there's kind of four here because Matthew's going to insert a story within a story. So there's three primary stories, three major stories of acts of healings. But here's this inserted story, because on the way, verse 20, on the way to this 12 year old girl, Jesus encounters a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, the entire lifetime of this girl who has just died. It's most likely she's bleeding from what we would discreetly call a female problem. And that would be bad enough. And in our day and age, that would be a terrible condition to endure. And the other health problems that would likely bring would be overwhelming to have some kind of condition like that for 12 long, long years. But in their culture, it was even worse than that because that bleeding made her unclean. It made her ceremonially impure. She could not worship with her people. She could not live with her family. She could not go to the temple. She was an unclean person. That would have brought a social stigma to her life and rejection by all of those around her. She would have been living in utter despair. This poor woman 
has gone 12 years of shunning crowds and 12 years of crowds shunning her. She is literally, not literally, she is figuratively the walking dead. So Jairus' daughter is dead, but this woman's life is as good as dead. She was a virtual leper. She would have had no rights, no privileges, no interaction, an unclean person. And Mark tells us she was dead broke. She had squandered and wasted all of her money on physicians who could do nothing to help her over the course of these 12 years. So what she does, because there's a crowd pressing around Jesus, she says uh, she, she's seizing the moment. She takes the initiative. She believes he is the Messiah. We don't know how she came to that belief. We don't know what she's heard or seen at the, to that point. But she discreetly sneaks up into the crowd behind Jesus. And while she's discreetly sneaking up, perhaps veiled, perhaps trying to guard her identity, she is saying to herself over and over, over again, if I just touch the fringe of his robe... I will get well. She's talking about the tassel that hangs from his robe that was required by Jesus as a rabbi under the law. And she's thinking to herself, if I just touch the tassel that's attached to the edge of the robe that's attached to this man, I will be saved. That's her words. It's translated get well for us, but she uses sozo in Greek. I will get saved. I will be delivered. I will be rescued. So she sneaks up. She touches the edge of his cloak. Jesus turning and seeing her. Seeing her, looking at her, knowing her. And he uses a term that is only used one time in all of the Gospel of Matthew. It is a term of, a, of affection. He says to her, daughter, daughter, take courage. Take courage. Your faith has, again, saved you. Second time. Your faith has delivered you. Not your faith in my tassel. Not your faith that I've got a magic robe. Your faith in me is implied has saved you. Has rescued you from this affliction. And at once the woman was third time saved. Matthew wants us to see with by using this word sozo. Which will most of the time in the book of Matthew mean spiritual salvation. He's already used it in chapter 1. You shall name him Jesus, for he will sozo. He will save his people from their sins. That's the word he uses here three times in a row. Her touching Jesus would normally make Jesus unclean. But instead, it saves her. It rescues her. She is saved. Here is a permanent healing. Here is a complete Healing, And I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, Matthew wants us to see that this physical healing implies spiritual healing. That this physical miracle that cured this physical woe also cured her spiritual lostness. One commentator put it this way, it's beautifully said. Faith has turned a healing into a salvific experience. Faith has turned an event into a relationship. Isn't that good? And that's the way our faith should be all through life. If we have faith, we go through life and we know that our events of our life are not random. They're not fate. It's not bad luck or good luck. These things aren't disconnected. With faith, we see every event in our life as furthering our relationship with the Lord. Right? 
Faith turns healing into a salvific experience. Sometimes Jesus just healed people. And when that happens, often the writers will use the word therapeutic in Greek. It's a physical healing. And we don't know if there's any spiritual implications or not. But here there seems to clearly be a spiritual implication. Because she has messianic faith. Now back to Jairus. Now we've had this other thing has been suspended. What's going to happen with Jairus' daughter? And so we go back to that now in verse 23. Jesus comes into the official's house, Jairus' house. He's the head of this home, and Jesus comes in there, and there's a crowd there, a large crowd, and they're in noisy disorder and distress, and there's flute players. What in the world is going on? Verse 23. Well, this simply is Matthew's way of proving to his readers that this girl is dead. What's already happened is they've hired the professional mourners. This was a thing. They were usually women. In Jewish culture, and you would hire them to come to your funeral service, essentially, and mourn the dead. These women would write poems or dirges that would praise the deceased. They would write eulogies, put them to music, and chant them to the accompaniment of a flute. All to stir up emotion. All to stir up a response. Well, I don't think there's a need for a lot of stirring up of emotion here. A 12-year-old girl has died. Right? They would also wear sackcloth. They would put ashes on their head, these professional mourners. They would weep. They would wail. And they would beat their breasts in great agony. It was quite a display. And it was very noisy. And it was very outlandish. And Jesus walks right into the middle of that scene in Jairus' house. And without asking permission of Jairus, without getting an okay from the head of the household, he looks at that entire crowd and he says, get out. Your services are no longer needed here. (laughs) Amen. Your professional services or mourners are over. Time to go. Leave. And then he says, she's not dead. She's asleep because she was asleep from Jesus perspective. Literally, she was dead, but from Jesus' perspective, from God's perspective, he uses a euphemism for death, calls it sleep because it's only temporary. She's going to wake up. She's going to get up. I'm about to put an end to this. And the early church adopted that euphemism. First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul refers to those who are asleep as Christians who have died in the Lord. It's the way we speak of each other who have died. We're only asleep in the Lord. That doesn't mean a soul sleep. That's a that's a reference to how temporary ultimately this is going to be and that Jesus is going to raise us from the grave. And so we adopted that even as Christians. Jesus says she's asleep. They know she to be dead. And so they go from wailing to what? Laughing. This is Matthew's subtle way of proving that she was dead. As a witness, he wants us to know how the crowd responded to his comment. Apparently, they won't leave on their own. And so the text says that they were cast out. Uses the same word used to cast out demons. I'm not saying they are demons, but they're they're hanging around way too long. And so they are forcibly removed from the house. 
And then without any recorded words here, Jesus walks in and gallantly takes this young lady by the hand. And without a word recorded, raises her to life. Doing exactly what Jairus believed he could do. Why is this significant? It is significant because of Daniel 12.2. And Daniel 12.2 describes that when Messiah comes in the fullness of his kingdom, quote, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. She is not dead. She is asleep. Now, she is not in the dust of the ground. She hasn't been buried, obviously. And so it's not a one-for-one correlation with Daniel 12.2. But Daniel 12.2 is a prophecy of the conditions of the millennial kingdom when Messiah comes. When Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation, there will be a massive resurrection. Many who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. That's not what's happening in Matthew yet. But what is happening is the Messiah is present and the Messiah is offering his kingdom. He's not bringing in the kingdom yet. He's offering it to Israel. And as an offer to Israel and to prove that he is the Messiah, to authenticate that he will one day fulfill Daniel 12 too, he is going to raise the dead in the here and now for this girl. Okay? That's what's going on here. It's an authentication of his title of Messiah. That's very, very important. It will come up again in Matthew eleven five when John the Baptist is in prison. Now watch this. John the Baptist is in prison and his faith is wavering. Remember that? He's been locked up. He's about to be beheaded. And he's vacillating. Is Jesus the one or not? That ought to bring us a measure of comfort right there. John the Baptist is vacillating. And they go to Jesus and they say, hey, John's in prison. And he's wondering, are you the expected one? Are you the anointed one? Or should we look for someone else? Jesus says to those messengers, you go back to John and you tell him the dead are raised up. Code, I'm the one. It's actually a longer quote than that. He'll say that that the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the mute can speak, the lame can walk, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to him. Go tell that to John. John will know that's the answer. This is one of three times that Jesus will raise the dead in his ministry. That's recorded in the Gospels. One of three here, Jairus' daughter. Another time is the son of a widow woman. And the third time is Lazarus. Because on the basis of two or three witnesses, every fact will be established. Three resurrections at the hand of the Messiah. And Matthew wants us to see in this longest of these, of these three deeds today, he wants us to see no doubt that the physical points to the spiritual. Uh, the physical alludes to and reveals the spiritual. So back to our main purpose this morning. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? It means you believe he can raise the dead. That's what it means. It means you believe that Jesus is still in the business of calling people out of spiritual death. That's what he can do. That's what it means when you say, I believe he is the anointed one of God. It means you believe he did for me what I could not do for myself. I was spiritually dead. But if you come and lay a hand on me, I will live. 
That's what it means. And as a Christian, you look back and you understand, I had no hope other than the unmitigated power of Jesus Christ to raise me from my death. You see, saving faith, messianic faith, comes to Jesus desperate like Jairus. Parents, are you listening? You come to Jesus desperate like Jairus, and you say to him, My child is spiritually dead, but you can raise him to life. You can raise her to life. That's what it means, Christian parent, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He can raise your dead child to life again. It also means he can do this for anyone else. See, there's discipleship lessons in this, and we're headed toward this uh, end of this chapter to beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Well, when those workers go into the harvest, they need to believe that Jesus can raise the dead. (laughs) Because we don't believe that when we go into the harvest, we need to stay home. More on that later. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, You are unresponsive to God spiritually in your trespasses and sins. But God, verse 5, not but you, not but the preacher, not but anything else, but God being rich in mercy, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. Ephesians 2, 1 and 5. This is the power of the gospel in the hand of Christ. So what does it mean when we say, I believe Jesus is the Christ? It means I believe he can raise the spiritually dead. Number two. It means you believe he can give sight to the blind. He can give sight to to the blind. Let's pick it up in verse 27. The second exciting story. As Jesus went on from there, not one but two blind men followed him. They initiated, they followed him crying out, "Have mercy on us, son of David." When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, "Do you believe that I am able to do this?" And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them. See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. Number two, it means you believe he can give sight to the blind. Blindness in the days of Christ was thought by many to be a punishment for sins. We we see that in John chapter 9, in the man born blind. There was a general consensus among the people of God that if you were blind, that was God directly punishing you for your personal sins. These two blind men persistently follow Jesus. And as they follow him... Knowing and believing that he is already, already, already up front. He's the Messiah. They're convinced of that. They say to him, have mercy on us, Messiah. That's what they say to him. Have mercy on us, son of David. 
Have mercy on us, greater son of David, who has come as the expected one. We are in a terrible condition. We are in a pitiful situation. We can't fix ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We're crying out to you to have mercy on us. This is outside the house. This is in a public gathering. Verse 28, Jesus enters the house. He wants this to be private. He's not looking to be ostentatious. He's not looking to um, for fanfare. He doesn't want applause of crowds. They're crying out. He just keeps on going into the house. Not their house. These blind men came up. Well, but they just followed him right into the house. Well, of course they did. Of course they did. They're blind. And he's the Messiah. They're seizing the moment. Their time has come. And they cry out for him to have mercy on them. Now this is amazing faith. This is big faith. It's huge faith. Because at this point, in redemptive history, no one had ever been healed of blindness. Never before recorded or done in the Old Testament. This is the first in the New Testament. They've never seen this happen. And they believe that He can do this for them. And we ask, how can they possibly believe that? It's actually very simple. They believe He's the Son of David. And they know Isaiah 35 verse 5, which says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Okay, if you're blind and you're in Israel, you're going to know Isaiah 35 5. The eyes of the blind will be opened when Messiah comes. Messiah is here. It's simple. One plus one equals I can see. (laughs) He's going to heal me. He can heal me. They're very bold and they're very persistent. As they follow Jesus into the house. And then Jesus does something extremely rare. In fact, this might be the first and only time he does this. Because Matthew wants us to see that this whole passage is about messianic faith. He says to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? That's rare. He, I don't know of another case of like that where he asked that kind of question. And their answer is so glorious. It's so beautiful. There's two words in Greek. Nai, Curie. Yes, Lord. Without hesitation. In full faith. No doubt whatsoever. We already believe you're the Messiah. We already know Isaiah 35 verse 5. Do we believe you can do this? Yes, of course. He touched their eyes saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. Boom, sight is restored instantly, completely, permanently. And then he tells them, shh, don't tell anybody. He wants to keep his general popularity down. And he doesn't want people flocking to him just for miracles of healing. Because that's not his primary purpose in coming. That's not why he is present. And so he's constantly saying, don't tell anybody. See, do it, you tell no one. Well, they disobeyed it's either Matthew's way of just saying hey every new disciple isn't perfectly obedient they should have obeyed him he wasn't kidding 
This is important. Popularity blowing up means opposition blowing up means pushing it to the cross sooner than his timing. And he doesn't want to just come and and throw out miracles left and right. He's very judicious and he's very strategic. They should have obeyed him. It also may be Matthew's way of saying they just couldn't keep silent. Messianic faith sings, once I was blind, but now I see. Amen. This is what it means to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. We join John Newton in Amazing Grace and we sing those words from the heart and we know they're true and we believe they are true. Or we sing, His mercy is more stronger than darkness, new every morn. What does it mean that Jesus is Messiah? It means that Jesus can remove blinders. Jesus can open blind eyes. It means that Jesus is the great ophthalmologist. That's what it means. It means that where the God of this world, little g, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God comes in the gospel and says, light shall shine out of darkness. God gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Second Corinthians four. That's what it means. That's messianic faith. Once I was blind, but now I can see. It means we understand, like Paul, the scales fall off of our eyes. By the power of the gospel, the scales fall off of our eyes. And we believe in Christ. The light comes on and we follow the light and we become children of light. This is the nature of messianic faith. This is the power of the Messiah. Third one. Third great act, third authoritative deed, third great story, each story getting shorter and shorter as we go to to show what it means that Jesus is Messiah. It means, number three, you believe he can give speech to the mute. He can give speech to the mute. Look at verse 32. As they were going out. (laughs) This is great. They're healed. These two blind men are going out of the house where all this just happened. As they were going out. A mute, demon-possessed man was coming in, was brought to him. After the demons, after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Correct. (laughs) Spot on. But the Pharisees were saying... He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. As these two once blind men are going out of the house, this mute man who is likely also deaf and is demon possessed is brought in. It's essentially next. (laughs) And faith is implied. Faith of his friends, faith of this person. It's not explicit here because Matthew's shortening up the story. It's certainly implied. And Matthew's emphasis here is not on the demon. That's kind of secondary. It's kind of beside the point in a way. His emphasis is on the dumbness, not the demon. His emphasis is on once the demon's out of the way, the dumb man will speak because that demon has come to torture him by taking away his voice. And he's likely also deaf. 
Once again, we ask the question with this implied faith, because they brought this man to Jesus. How could they believe that Jesus could do this? Because they already believe he is the Messiah. And they know Isaiah 35, 6, which says this, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. If you're mute and you're in Israel in the first century, you know Isaiah 35, 6. Once again, it's, I'm mute. He's the Messiah. One plus one, I can speak. What does it mean for us then if we take this from the physical to the spiritual, which seems to be Matthew's indication? What does that mean for us today to believe Jesus is the Messiah? It means you believe he brings new words. Amen? New songs, new words, new worship, new prayers. Things start coming out of your mouth that never came out of your mouth before. He gives speech to the mute. Every unbeliever is mute. Every unbeliever's tongue cleaves to their mouth, as it were, not praising God, not praying to God, not witnessing to Jesus Christ. That is the plight and the life of every unbeliever. Jesus comes and loosens that tongue. And you, lo and behold, you find yourself in church singing praises to God. <laughs> Lo and behold, you have a new heart that issues forth new speech. You're saying things that you've never said before. You went from tongue-tied to a joyful worshiper. You went from muted lips to the sacrifice of praise on your lips. You went from having nothing to witness to to being a bold witness. Not a perfect witness, but by the power of Christ, a bold one. The reaction here is pretty stark and extreme on its two ends. The crowds who are stirred with messianic excitement promptly and uh, accurately say nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And that's saying a lot. There was Moses. There was Elijah. There was Elisha. There was the Davidic kingdom. There was the riches and the power of Solomon. There was a long history of men of God and the acts of God. And they are accurate when they say there has never been anything like this. But on the other end of the spectrum are the enemies of Jesus. Are the opponents of God. These Pharisees. We've talked about them plenty of times in the past. They say that this is the power of Satan. Now that's Matthew's way as a witness of showing us. You could not deny the miracles. Do you see that? These are his enemies. They're not denying the miracle. They've just got to change the source of the power. Because there is no denial that he raised the dead. And he gave sight to the blind. And he caused the mute man to speak. They're not even arguing on that basis. Matthew's very clever and subtle in how he witnesses to us. So let's summarize it and then we'll close up. Faith in Jesus as Messiah means faith he can raise the spiritually dead. He can give sight to the spiritually blind. And he can give speech to the spiritually mute. All grounded in Old Testament prophecies. Grounded in the word of God. Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah 35. Of physical miracles that pointed to the Messiah's coming. 
that we see today in spiritual realities and we will see in the future in kingdom conditions. So let's put ourselves as we close in the passage. Just one more sweep through this passage. Do you see that you were once this dead girl? As dead spiritually as she was physically? Needing a touch from Jesus to be raised to life? Do you see that you were once this bleeding woman, unclean, impure? Believing that only Jesus could heal you and cleanse you inside and out? Do you believe you were once these two blind men, knowing your condition of blindness and crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. Have mercy on me, Lord. What a prayer of salvation. When the blind come to see that they're blind, when they come to see their own sin and God's holiness and God's answer in Jesus Christ, that their own works could never save them, that they're not good enough. I mean, by the way, how good do you have to be to please a holy God? When the, when the blind come to see that they're blind and they cry out to the Messiah, the only one with the power, have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. Have you come to see that you are like this final man, once owned by the devil? I'm not saying possessed by the devil, but he did own you. You were his slave. He was your master, whether you acknowledged him or not. Once owned by the devil, once deaf to the word of God, once dumb as a praiser and a witnesser of Jesus Christ until Jesus went to work on you. (laughs) Put yourself in the story. I mean, we can read this as Christians, right? We read this as Christians. And when we see Jairus say, if you lay your hand on her, she will live. We say, well, of course she will. (laughs) We totally believe that, right? Because we have messianic faith. And this woman, if I can just touch his tassel, I'll be made well. Well, of course she will. Because you believe in the power of Christ. (laughs) And and this, and this, uh, these blind men. And we join right there with them in verse 28. When he says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Well, yes, we believe you can do this. Don't you? Don't you believe he can, he can, he can open the blind eyes of anyone he wants to? That this is messianic faith. Because he is the anointed one. Okay? He has unlimited power and unlimited authority. This is what it means to believe Jesus is the Christ. And it means this, you believe if he can do this for them, if he can do this for me, he can do this for others. Now I know how to pray that the Lord would send workers into his harvest. What kind of workers? Workers who believe this about the Messiah. This is what it means to believe Jesus is the Messiah. It means Jesus can save every Muslim on the planet if he wanted to. It means he can save every Roman Catholic. He can save the Pope if he wanted to. He can save every person in prison, every criminal, every homosexual, every lesbian, every politician, every judge, every senator, every congressman, every president. He can save anyone he wants to. That's what it means to believe Jesus is the Messiah. He can save any criminal, any thug, any gangbanger, any violent, vile person on the planet. He can save everyone on the planet if he wanted to. This is what it means to believe Jesus is the Messiah. Do you believe that I can save everyone? Well, yes, Lord. Of course I believe you can. Because your power is unlimited. 
This is what Paul believed. This is why he said the the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Jesus could save every Jewish person on the planet if he wanted to. This is what it means to believe Jesus is the Messiah. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we, we, we want you to grow our faith, deepen our faith. And forgive us for our little faith and our doubts and our even our unbelief. And we know there are other truths in the scriptures that indicate that you will not save every single person. That's not what I'm saying. But we also want to equally hold that you could and you can. So we surrender to your sovereign authority and your sovereign grace. And God, I just personally, as I've already prayed this morning and maybe praying for the brothers and sisters here, we would ask even for forgiveness when we start to live like you can't save other people. When we start thinking they're outside your reach, uh, that they're too far gone, that, that you're not going to answer our prayers or nothing could be further from the truth. So forgive us for our unbelief and our doubts. And help us remember these three stories of you raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, and giving speech to the mute. And that you can do that for the, pers- the persons and the people that we love, that we're praying for right now. And we ask that you would save them. In Jesus' name, amen.